We stand for the reading of Scripture. Our sermon text today is from Jeremiah, the 29th chapter, verses 1 through 9. Hear now the word of God. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of, God, uh, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. These are the words of God and all God's people said. You may be seated. The book of Jeremiah is an inspired correspondence from the prophet Jeremiah to the Jewish exiles who had been deported to Babylon not long after King Nebuchadnezzar's army destroyed Jerusalem, including the temple complex, which was the center of Israel's corporate, cultural, and religious life. The people of Judah had been forced to leave their homes in Jerusalem and become refugees in Babylon. They were moving from traditions to change, and from the familiar to the unfamiliar. Many longed for their former life. They wept by the rivers of Babylon, unable to sing or play their harps. Psalm 138 dramatically captures this sentiment. By the rivers of Babylon, it says, there we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. And our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, Sing us one of those songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Jeremiah's message to the homesick exiles is clear. The reason this has happened is because of sustained national unfaithfulness, despite many warnings and calls to repentance. God has now brought justice to bear upon their sin. And consequently, many have been uprooted from their life in Jerusalem and planted among a pagan people in a foreign land. Naturally, the question for them emerges, so what do we do now? Jeremiah gives them prophetic counsel in the midst of their predicament. And Jeremiah's instructions for them can also inform our own situation. The church that now exists in the post-Christian West, you and me, has entered into something of an exilic situation. 
We have not moved or been displaced geographically, but we are experiencing a deteriorating and destabilizing cultural environment. We are inhabiting an increasingly hostile and alien landscape populated with rapidly degrading moral, social, political, legal, and religious values which are quickly making their mark on every square inch of our cultural experience. The champions of this new phase of cultural change want us to believe that this is the very work of capital P progress and that we are shattering glass ceilings and rescuing the heretofore oppressed segments of society from their long bondage. But this is simply a false controlling narrative, and I'm not buying it, nor should you. Let's be clear. The church has always understood its mission to include the work of charity and friendship to outcasts of society. In fact, in the earliest days of the growth of the Christian church throughout the Roman Empire, it was their acts of charity more than anything else that was noted by curious onlookers as the distinguishing mark of these strange Jesus followers. And it's no surprise. They were simply acting like Jesus. Go figure. But what our modern champions of social justice and sexual liberty call progress is really a clever euphemism for control and arrogant rebellion against God and his purposes for the world. Theirs is a false gospel that enslaves. This aggressive form of progress is antithetical, even contradictory to the teachings of Scripture and is deeply harmful to the health and stability of social order and religious expression. This war on truth has many fronts, but one area of particular intensity is that of sexual ethics and anthropology. As Christians, we look to the scriptures for answers to questions about the nature of human persons and our purpose, gender distinction, and the proper expression of sexual desire and fulfillment within the context of the marriage covenant. When phrases like gender fluidity, gender neutral pronouns, non-cisgender, gender dysphoria, gay rights, same-sex marriage, transsexuality, and the like, become mainstream lingo and the basis of corporate policy, school curriculum, and government-imposed legislation, then it's safe to say that the cat is out of the bag. The church is in exile. What do we do now? Canadian Bill C-4, as it's called, passed into law on January 7th, of this year, is a very recent and illustrative example of legislation designed to protect unbiblical notions and practices regarding sexual ethics and anthropology, and at the same time, target and prosecute those who would work to intervene in the lives of those gripped by these sexual sins. This new law prohibits the practice or promotion of what uh, has been become known as conversion therapy, The bill defines the term conversion therapy as, quote, a practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, change a person's gender identity to cisgender, change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth, repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior, repress a person's non-cisgender gender identity, 
and repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth. That's what the law defines conversion therapy as. Furthermore, the bill sets forth the legal consequences of attempting to influence a person away from this confusion. Quote, everyone who knowingly causes another person to undergo conversion therapy, including by providing conversion therapy to that person, is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than five years or guilty of an offense punishable on summary conviction. The bill's rationale for criminalizing conversion therapy is that it is harmful to individuals and society at large. The bill states that conversion therapy, as they define it, quote, causes harm to the persons who are subjected to it, causes harm to society because, among other things, it is based on and propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, including the myth that heterosexuality, cisgender gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. It goes on to say, in light of those harms, it is important to discourage and denounce the provision of conversion therapy in order to protect the human dignity and equality of all Canadian citizens. The church is in exile. Our brothers and sisters north of the border have been increasingly under attack in a steadily growing secular state. We must pay close attention, Christian, because these things are likely but previews of things soon to come in our own land if they are not here among us already. Today, we stand with our Canadian brethren against Bill C-4 and all such legislation that makes a mockery of the truths of Christian scripture, especially with regard to the order of creation and God's design and intention for human sexuality and marriage. We stand in strict opposition to a law that effectively prohibits the practice of evangelism and biblical pastoral counseling, which offers those struggling with these particular sins the hope of freedom and forgiveness in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We stand with our Canadian brethren against the unbiblical categories of sexual identity defined in this law. We stand with them against the false notion that conversion therapy is harmful to persons and to society. In fact, we would argue exactly the opposite. Conversion from these things to repentance and faith in the saving grace of Jesus Christ is the only hope for true freedom and wholeness. We stand with our brethren against the state's illicit use of the law to promote false notions of human sexuality and moral responsibility and to protect sinful practices while at the same time punishing those who administer the message of the gospel to the spiritually broken and confused. And we stand against legal threats to conform to ungodly social and moral norms regarding the ethics of human sexuality. These are sobering times. The church in the West is in grave danger of buckling under growing political and legal pressures, in part because of extreme passivity and spiritual laziness. We are theological couch potatoes, apparently waiting on someone else to do the hard work of disciplined thinking and living for us. Isn't there an app for that? No, there isn't. 
We each will be called to account for how we spent the time God has granted us. Revelation 3, 2 and 3, to the angel of the church in Sardis, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you says Jesus to the church. In some ways, we're asleep in the light. Lord, have mercy and wake us from our slumber. God's word on sexual purity is clear and unequivocal. All forms of sexual sin, homosexuality, transgenderism, pornography, mental sexual fantasies, adultery, sexual intimacy outside of heterosexual marriage, all of these violate the boundaries of the order of creation and the biblical marriage covenant before the triune God. And all are condemned as acts of sinful rebellion against the moral law of God and his divine intention for human flourishing. At the same time, all those involved in the practice of sexual sin are invited to salvation and restoration through the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Sins of all kinds presses on every one of us, even right now. But God's grace is manifest in our brokenness. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Those who respond in true faith are justified and will be made whole by the work of the Spirit of Christ in them. Thanks be to God. God's standards regarding human sexuality are treated in Scripture as the most important ones for relations among people. In the Old Testament, teaching against adultery is emphasized second only to teaching against idolatry. In the New Testament, both Christ and the apostles emphasize the vital importance of marital fidelity. Paul includes sexual sins in every one of his many vice lists, and in most cases, they head the list and receive the greatest emphasis. Human sexuality is one of God's most delightful gifts to man and woman. But the sordid record of human history and the anguish of personal experience highlight the basic reality that this joy is reserved for those who follow the manufacturer's instructions. This outcome is not surprising because human nature was designed to reflect the divine nature. And God's law is simply his expressed will that people conform to the moral nature of himself and that their character be shaped into that of the ultimate human Jesus Christ, the very image of God. In a uh, representational way, we are biblically warranted in viewing maleness and femaleness and their proper relationship as reflecting God's own mysterious relational nature. Inasmuch as the relational trinity is one, yet three, and the three are, are cemented in a relationship of loving commitment, we can see in the Godhead the ideal model for biblical marriage. The pervasive Old Testament representation of God as the husband and Israel the wife and the New Testament representation of Christ as the bridegroom and the church as the bride are more than sentimental analogies. They are a self-revelation of God to explain in human terms through a figure what deep personal and spiritual relationships are designed to be. Human marriage is designed deliberately to reflect the eternal reality of the best of all relationships that of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, primarily and secondarily of God's covenant relationship 
with his people. This raises the question, if Scripture's teaching about marriage reflects God's own qualities expressly revealed for humanity's best interests, why are these standards the ones most often violated? No other area of sin, it seems, can demonstrate more clearly humanity's arrogant, foolish, perverse, blind, and demonic state of fallenness than our rebellion against God's intention to bless us with the precious gift of sexuality. I want to now lay out a brief biblical summary on the issues of homosexuality and transgenderism and then pan out to a broader focus on our cultural situation at large and draw out just a few implications from Jeremiah 29. What then are the biblical texts to consider regarding God's assessment of the practice of homosexuality in particular? An appropriate place to start would be Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The fundamental understanding of marriage and of one flesh union has been a husband-wife, one flesh relationship since the beginning. Jesus and Paul regularly, regularly appeal to God's design at creation from the beginning, as they say, in order to defend God's ideal for marriage as the context for human sexual desire and expression. Marriage in the order of creation is the foundation for Christian sexual ethics. Now, some advocates for the homosexual lifestyle assert that Jesus was neutral or favorable to it since he did not directly address the homosexuality sexuality issue explicitly. Students, I hope you are paying careful attention in logic and rhetoric class. There is a blatant fallacy in the logic of this view. This would constitute what we call an argument from silence, and thus it proves nothing. There are many things Christ did not teach about directly. Bestiality, prostitution, incest, rape, racism, to name just a few. Does this therefore prove that he was not opposed to them because he did not mention them by name? All of these practices were common in the Roman world in his day. No, we look to principles he taught, and we find that he reaffirmed repeatedly in the clearest and the strongest of terms that permanent heterosexual monogamy was the original and continuing will of God as the only legitimate context for sexual relationship. Additionally, the biblical case against homosexuality can be built from other specific texts. I will mention five texts with some brief explanation and commentary. I will at times be speaking frankly and openly on these matters in the same manner that the Bible speaks frankly about them. Um, This is a survey overview. This is not a sustained argument. Genesis 19, 1 through 29. This is the narrative of God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and the rescue of Lot, with which I assume you are uh, pretty familiar. Some will point out that the sins of Sodom go well beyond those of a sexual nature. As interpreters of Scripture, we should not be so narrow in our thinking that we understand this text to only speak against the episode at Lot's doorstep. We should pay careful attention to how the prophet Ezekiel does indeed emphasize Sodom's neglect of the poor and needy in addition to their sexual sin. And we Western Christians should be more careful about singling out homosexuality as wrong, but neglecting the poor ourselves 
which is also an evil in the sight of God. And Gomorrah, too, is punished by God along with Sodom for its wickedness. So, yes, granted, divine judgment comes on Sodom not only because of an attempted homosexual mob rape. But it is important to note that ancient Jewish literature regularly characterized Sodom with homosexual activity and rape. It's what they're known for. For example, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, the Sodomites, he says, quote, hated strangers and abused themselves with sodomitical practices, end quote. The New Testament reinforces the fact that one of Sodom's sins is homosexual practices. In 2 Peter 2, uh, Peter refers to it as the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, referring to what happened at Sodom. Also, they indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, is what Jude 7 says about this episode. So it is clear, according to Scripture, that the sins of Sodom were not a simple breach of hospitality that God looked unfavorably on. They were, in fact, wicked acts by depraved men and deserved divine punishment. Second text, Leviticus 18, along with uh, Leviticus 18:22, along with uh, chapter 20, verse 13. Leviticus 18:22 says, "You shall not lie with a male as with a woman; it is an abomination." Leviticus 20:13 says, "If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination; they shall surely be put to death; their blood is upon them." Now. <clears throat> Much could be said here about the nuances of the cultural and legal situation in which these prohibitions are applied in Scripture, not to mention the other sins listed in the same legal context. But time will not allow us to go into all that here. It suffices for our purposes today to say there is an explicit prohibition in these two texts against homosexual relations among the people of God, which were punishable by law. A third text from the New Testament, Romans 1, 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Here we read that God gave over women and men to degrading passions because they exchanged their natural function for engaging in unnatural, indecent acts. It is a clear text against homosexual relations, which are a turning toward idolatry away from the knowledge of God and his original creational purposes. Because of this rebellion, God withdraws his gracious influences and allows them to, be, uh, to fully pursue their rebellious desires. Along with idolatry and other symptomatic deviations from God's ordered creation, homosexuality, homosexual behavior is a clear indication of violating God's creational design for male and female to enjoy a one-flesh union in the context of marriage. So clearly does this go against God's created design, Paul says it is against nature. Physis is the Greek word here, which we get our word physics from, nature. Nature, it's, it, it uh, violates nature itself, not just the moral law of God. That is, it violates the way God has ordered things and built the world. Fourth text, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Hang with me on these. 
Paul states that fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, the effeminate, uh, the King James Version lists uh, the word here as effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, the covetous, drunkards, revilers, or swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul adds to the Corinthians, such were some of you. Although homosexuality is a distortion of God's one flesh design, this isn't singled out in Paul's list here. Paul includes heterosexual sin as well, fornication, adultery, sins related to possessions, thieving, coveting, swindling, and here's a broad one that can hit close to home for all of us, idolatry. Why is it we could ask that Christians championing uh, biblical morality on sexual matters go strangely silent on the New Testament's teaching about possessions? I do think there is a tendency to ignore the more common sins, and this this imbalance is, is not justified. All sin dishonors God and harms human relationships. Nevertheless, this imbalance does not take away from the force of the text's plain meaning as it applies to the sin of homosexuality. What does Paul have in mind by using the terms effeminate and homosexuals? This requires just a little bit of explanation, so um, bear with me a minute. Follow follow this with me. So, in the Roman colony of Corinth, the paterfamilias, as he was known, the the head of the household, um, had all kinds of privileges, legal privileges, One of them would include buying male slaves to use as passive sexual partners. The word uh, in the text here, effeminate, refers to this passive sexual partner. Elite male citizens were socially permitted to be the sexually active participants, the leading partners in the relationship. And so that's the word we get uh, that's translated as homosexual. The effeminate and the homosexual refer to the passive and the active uh, partner in this relationship. Roman law permitted this practice, but it was a crime for a slave to take the sexual initiative on a male Roman citizen. Not surprisingly, the Romans didn't even come up with their own word for this despised passive activity, but their Latin word malacus was simply a transliteration of the Greek malakos, which simply refers to a passive homosexual male. They just borrowed the Greek term for it. So we must not miss how Paul speaks in strikingly countercultural terms here. Though Roman law did not prohibit the practice, Paul says that both homosexual participants are in the wrong. The socially despised, passively involved, effeminate, and the socially acceptable, actively involved, practicing homosexual. In this, in his letter to the Romans that we saw earlier, Paul says that all homosexual relations are in view, including lesbianism. What is more, Paul is even using the Greek rendering of Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13, which we saw earlier. He's using language from those Old Testament texts. In fact, even more surprisingly, he coins a new word based on these passages. The word arsenikoites comes from a combination of arsenikos, male, and koite, bed, which obviously has sexual connotations. Interestingly, we have no ancient usage of this word, arsenikoites, prior to 1 Corinthians. Every usage of the word after Paul by the Christian church fathers indicates male homosexual activity. And it is frequently placed in their own list of vices. 
Here, Paul's use of two words makes clear that both participants, the leading and passive partner, are in the wrong. So Paul, in faithfulness to the order God laid down at creation, would not parrot what was acceptable in Roman society. But he spoke against it unequivocally. And so should we, coupled with the same offer of grace through the gospel that he reminded the Corinthians that they had been beneficiaries of, even though some of them had practiced these things formerly. Verse 9 says uh, of this passage, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. There is hope for sexual sin. And finally, 1 Timothy 1 9 through 11, law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers or immoral men and homosexuals, there's that word again, arsenikoites, and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted." So here, Paul simply applies the Ten Commandments to his contemporary context, and he includes uh, the, the term immoral men. Uh, the Greek term there is pornoi, a word from which we get our word pornography, and arsenikoites, homosexuals. Given the linguistic groundwork we briefly laid here, this seems to be a pretty straightforward addition to the Bible's teaching against the practice of homosexuality. In light of this overview, we see that God's purposes for marriage has been reinforced. That is, God ordained exclusive, permanent, monogamous marriage as the only way to achieve the full unity of two human beings, to provide children and home, and to reflect God's own relationship to the redeemed humankind. Although some activists are bold enough to claim that the first and third purposes of marriage are available to a monogamous homosexual relationship, The whole thrust of scripture is toward the union of one man and one woman as God's only way of fulfilling these purposes, and that the one flesh union is not otherwise possible. True, only a few passages deal directly and explicitly with homosexual conduct, but the pervasive teaching of scripture is to condemn all sexual relationships outside the heterosexual marriage bond. Now, just a brief word about... Uh, transgenderism and transsexuality from a biblical uh, point of view. The International Bill of Gender Rights insists that persons have a right to redefine their sexual identity. A right to redefine their sexual identity. This includes sex reassignment surgery for those who feel trapped in what otherwise turns out to be the wrong body. This view assumes that the question of personhood and the question of gender are distinct ones. But can we really separate our personhood from our sex? Who am I and what sex I am go together? Christian philosopher Paul Copan tells the story of a friend that illustrates this point very clearly. Think about this with me. His friend was teaching a philosophy class. He showed a video clip of a man who wanted surgery to remove a leg because he felt like a one-legged man trapped in a two-legged man's body. The professor asked the class if he should have his leg amputated. The class thought this ludicrous, naturally, and that the problem was in the man's mind. Interestingly, they knew how the body ought to function, 
that it had a certain purpose or goal, and that this normal-sounding idea was not an idea socially constructed by human bipeds. Then the professor asked, so what do we do with a woman who claims she is trapped in a man's body? Uh, or, excuse me, what do we do with a woman who claims she is a man trapped inside a woman's body? The class went silent. We can raise the chicken and the egg question here. Is the problem the wrong body? Or is there something wrong with the mind or the spirit or the soul? Does the body need adjusting or does the thinking need adjusting? Talk of a man's being trapped inside a woman's body or vice versa ignores very clear bodily realities and their purposes. Yes, hormonal imbalances can also contribute to the confusion. But very clear bodily realities should serve as anchor points and indicators of how to reorient confused sexual identity. As the doctrine of bodily resurrection reminds us, our bodies are integral to who we are. Unfortunately, the ghost of Platonism still infects our understanding of human anthropology. We must be on guard here. Further, our bodies are not our own. They are a gift from God and for uh, for the believer. They are the temple of God's spirit, 1 Corinthians 6.19. So in rejecting our God-given body, including our sex at birth, we do not merely reject the body that we happen to receive from our parents. We reject the very gift of God itself. So by what authority would a sex change be justified? Typically, it is justified on the basis of one's feelings. After all, the motto of our day is, I feel, therefore I am. So the man who feels like a female is therefore justified in going through with a drastic operation or hormone therapy. The reality, however, is that any such operation is is anti-creational. It produces a body incapable of procreation. In other words, we cannot change the created order. Our sexual identity is not up to us to decide. In trying to find ourselves in this way, we may actually lose ourselves altogether. Indeed, the fact that so many transvestites remain deeply unsatisfied with their sex change operations should serve as a caution against such a procedure. So, while the genetic aspect of sex is generally quite clear at birth, there are rare exceptions to this, um, one can experience gender confusion as a result of dysfunctional family and other social environments. This can result in same-sex attraction or feeling that one possesses the wrong body. We should take these contributing factors seriously and seek to help those struggling with the psychological and emotional trauma of past experiences, no doubt. Perhaps some of us suffer from such trauma and need to seek out help to work through them, uh, work through the emotions, and work towards spiritual healing. But a commonly accepted view in in our society today is that sexual identity is simply a social construct and not something given at birth. But if this is the case, then why all the fuss about, say, women's rights? Why press the issue of women's rights if there is nothing intrinsic to or distinctive about being a woman? It's purely arbitrary. Another cultural irony is this. We're told we can readily change our sexual identity, but having a sex change operation... Um, excuse me, we can change our sexual identity by having a a sex change operation. Um, Biology can be altered to fit one psychological frame of mind, but as we have already noted, those struggling with same-sex attraction are told they can't ever change, or according to the Canadian Bill C-4, that it's harmful to change. 
that they were born that way. It is biology or genetics that determines inner awareness of our sexual identity. This is nonsense. I feel like I'm in Alice in Wonderland reading some of this stuff. It doesn't make any sense. But wait, there's more. We have yet another irony. Sex reassignment surgery, which is supposed to fix the problem, turns out to be the luck of historical circumstances, a medical procedure only recently available to industrialized societies. Up until the past few decades in history of the human race, changing one's sex was not possible. And thus people have had to grapple with the internal problem. Humans can now create themselves in their own image, the image of one's supposed real self in outright defiance of their creator's good gift. The church is in exile. For those living in exile, the threat of assimilation is real and powerful. The story of Daniel and his three friends illustrates the kind of cultural and magisterial influence that the Jewish exiles were intentionally submitted to in order to promote assimilation and realign their allegiances to the Babylonian way of life. The story is familiar to you. Nebuchadnezzar, in particular, sought to assimilate the exiles into Babylonian culture by obliterating their religious and cultural identity and creating dependence upon the royal court. For this reason, the exiles were given names linked with Babylonian deities in place of Israelite names linked with their god, Yahweh. Think about the name change uh, aspect of this. Um, and we can, the use of language is powerful. Changing words, changing definitions, changing labels means something. Daniel means in uh, Hebrew, God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael means who is what God is. And Azariah means Yahweh is a helper. These became names in Babylon that invoked the help of the Babylonian gods Marduk, Bel, and Nebo. Daniel's name becomes Belteshazzar, which means, O lady, wife of the god Bel, protect the king. Hananiah becomes Shadrach, I am very fearful of God. Mishael becomes Mishach, I am of little account, or who is like the god Aku. And Azariah becomes Abednego, servant of the shining one Nebo. They were schooled in the language and mythological literature of the Babylonians and their food was assigned from the king's table, reminding them constantly that the source of their daily bread uh, was from the king's table and it was creating a sense of dependence and even obligation. Daniel and his three friends courageously resisted the attempted assimilation to their own uh, danger. They retained their original names. They would not uh, accept the change of name and resolved not to defile themselves with the king's food and drink. Daniel and his friends avoided the luxurious diet of the king's table as a way of protecting themselves from being ensnared by the temptations of the Babylonian culture. They used their distinctive diet as a way of retaining their distinctive identity as Jewish exiles and avoiding complete assimilation into Babylonian culture, which was the king's goal. With this restricted diet, they continue, continually reminded themselves in this time of testing that they were the people of God in a foreign land, that they were dependent for their food, indeed for their very livelihood, upon God, their creator, and not King Nebuchadnezzar. As Christians in cultural exile, we face similar pressures in our day to assimilate and conform. You and I are being offered an enormous and enticing cultural buffet of all kinds of dishes, they look good and tasty under that heat lamp. They smell fresh. 
And we watch throngs of people rush over to have their fill. But the tragedy is that it happens to be laced with poison. The slow-acting kind that is present in only trace amounts, the the cumulative effects of which are what turn out to be deadly, not the one bite. What are you eating from this menu? Are you taking a steady diet of slow death? Are you willing to sell your soul to the devil for another Turkish delight? Or are you discerning the times, exercising disciplined restraint, and teaching your children to be shrewd and judicious themselves for the sake of purity and submission to God? The church is in exile, and the threat of assimilation is real and dangerous. So what do we do? What does Jeremiah say to the exiles dwelling in Babylon? And I will close with this. He tells them to settle down, build houses, plant gardens, and have children. He tells them to seek after and pray for the peace of the city. Jeremiah's letter was both a comfort and a blow to those broken with homesickness and confusion. Its every word, read and circulated among them, must have brought to mind vivid pictures of Jeremiah himself and all the ways he had tried to reach them with the truth. Perhaps they remembered when he cut off his dark uh, curls in a mournful moment, silhouetted on the barren heights, or the time he wore the linen sash over his prophet's robes. Who could forget the sound of the clay pot breaking against the potsherd gate as he preached on their brokenness? 800 miles away now, with a whole set of new circumstances, they read his words with new ears. He had important things to say to them and to us. Settle down in Babylon and prepare for the long haul. Build houses and dwell in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit, take wives and have sons and daughters. Anyone thinking he was going to be back home in two years might not make these kinds of commitments. Here they were being told to roll up their sleeves and to get to the business of living. Theirs was going to be a long exile. So is ours. As the saying goes, bloom where you're planted. They were to be just, they were to be just as active, as fruitful, as industrious as if they were at home. God never condones impoverishment as a principle under any circumstances. It was always his desire that his people be increased and not diminished. Jeremiah told them to be good citizens. Become involved in making that place better for you having been there. Seek the peace of the city. Pray to the Lord for it, he tells them. Rather than becoming detached and passive, they were actively to be bringing down the grace of God into that pagan city. In much the same way, Christians are to be instruments of peace in the midst of a secular culture. When Jesus prayed for his disciples before his arrest in Gethsemane, he said, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world, John 17. Jesus was clearly speaking of the way his disciples were to live on earth, even though they were citizens of heaven. And finally, he says, do not let yourselves be deceived. The land of their exile was not only filled with all kinds of pagan gods and practices, it was also filled with their own false prophets. It was the latter about which Jeremiah was most concerned. How like this present world for the Christian. We can more easily detect many of the dangers of the secular system out there, but not so easily do we detect heresies in the midst of those professing the faith, even the sins of our own hearts. We can be so busy hunting down devils from without that we neglect fighting the devils from within. Paul wrote passionately to the Galatians who were being led astray by this false, by false doctrine. 
He says, there are some who trouble you and who want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Centuries earlier, Jeremiah, operating out of these same protective instincts, said, do not let your prophets and your diviners deceive you. I have not sent them, said the Lord. They were perverting the pure words of guidance coming down to them from the Lord, words that were their only hope in the land of exile. Conclusion. The church is in exile. So what do we do now? Plant a garden. Build a home. Raise your children in the fear of the Lord and give them in marriage to be a blessing to the world. Remain unspotted from the world. Pursue sexual purity. Love your husband. Take delight in your wife. Honor your father and your mother. Serve one another in love. Feast and delight in the Lord all the days of your life. Bloom where you are planted and be faithful ambassadors for Christ, for the good of the world and to the glory of God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for hanging with me. I know that was a lengthy sermon. But these things are important. We have to talk about them. We have to preach the word faithfully. We have to understand the times and we have to live faithfully within them. In our text, if we were to continue reading past verse 9, here's what we would read. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promises and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. And I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather from you all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to this place from which I have sent you into exile. In spite of how many, uh, in spite of how things may seem at times, we do have a future and a hope in the Lord. Many of those who heard the news concerning the length of exile would have lots of reasons to feel utterly hopeless. They would never live to see the promise fulfilled, I will visit you and perform my good towards you and cause you to return to this place. The only comfort they could draw from those words would be that possibly their children or their grandchildren might reap that blessing. Jeremiah, however, may have been describing something that reached beyond the return from Babylon, even beyond any point in time. Something that referred to the eternal destiny of all those who honor the Lord with their earthly lives. The words that follow reach into the gospel, uh, the words that follow this passage reach into the gospel age and bring further reality to Jeremiah's vision of what life can be like even in the land of exile. And you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart, says the Lord. Not only will they come back home to Jerusalem, they will come back home to the Lord, to the intimacy of heart that is described there. This is the intimacy available to us in the gospel. Just as they read Jeremiah's words like a letter from home, so also we should read all of scripture like a letter from home, the kind that will keep us from falling away in the land of exile and will sustain us until we come into the new Jerusalem. We are a people in exile, but we serve a great king who rules over all the nations of the world, and his agenda has been made clear. As we approach the table now, may we remember the eschatological dimension of this table of thanksgiving, this Eucharist.
The king of the universe has invited us to dine with him at his table, a table that functions as an axis between heaven and earth, mediated by our great high priest, Jesus Messiah. Let us now eat with joy and deep thanksgiving. God Almighty, who is a God like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders, who in the heavens can be compared to you? O Lord of hosts, who is a strong Lord like you? Among the gods there is none like you, O Lord, and there are no works like your works. For you are great and do wondrous things. You are God alone. What wonders you have wrought in the mysteries of the gospel. O Lamb of God, you have delivered us from the wrath to come. You have made our peace in the blood of your cross. We are now victors because of what Christ has done. And now may we go forth and live as those who have been redeemed for your glory and for our good. Amen. Now receive this benediction from Ephesians 6.24. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love uncorruptible. Amen.